0: Is Bloomberg Surveillance. If we got just a little better than the worst productivity performance of any post-war recovery, that could make a big difference.
1: I'm not convinced that we're measuring GDP right. It doesn't feel like a 2% world to me. It feels like a 3% world.
2: The Fed has hemmed us in. The dictates of the Phillips curve model are simply that this business cycle will not be allowed to accelerate.
3: Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio.
4: Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Key. Worldwide Bloomberg Surveillance We welcome all of you Bloomberg Radio Plus And of course out on Bloomberg.com On our radio stations Bloomberg 1200 Boston Bloomberg 1130 here In 80 degree Mike Do we get to 80 degrees today? 80 degree New York?
1: Uh, hard to say They're they're calling for about 75 And usually they underplay that a little So we'll see
4: mm-hmm. Lunch outside Class outside today Class outside I like that Class outside uh, today Remember that? You got nothing done. That's what I remember. Exactly. That was when the you whole did. point. They class outside. No, they did, never did that at Yale University. Um, Bloomberg, uh, one FM, Washington. Good morning in Baltimore. And of course, early morning to you in San Francisco. Sirius and XM across this nation. Bloomberg surveillance this morning brought to my Cohn Resnick accounting tax advisory. It can be hard to navigate through economic uncertainty. Your business needs industry insight and transformative advice to drive it forward. Find out why at com. He is from Xavier High School. This is a few years back. He's the vice chairman of the Bank of Cyprus. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Wilbur Ross joins us uh, right now. There's an informer radio uh, DJ as well. What does the vice chairman of the Bank of Cyprus do? Well, it's like a lady in waiting for the chairman. (laughs) How are the board meetings? (laughs) I mean, we all have a stereo. Well, first of all, I would suggest 80% of Americans can't find Cyprus on the map. That's a different story. But after the crisis on a Saturday morning, X number of years ago, explain to us how you go into Cyprus and what you do as a vice chairman. Well, first we went
5: into Cyprus because we felt that the concern about the economy was being very much overdone. Uh, Cypriot economy is based on tourism and based on being a corporate headquarters for companies uh, wanting a low-tax jurisdiction. We think those two have enduring characteristics to them, and our general theory is that if you own a big bank in a small country – you really have bought a warrant on the affairs of that country. So it starts with deciding, do we believe the Cypriot economy would recover? And indeed it has. It's had positive GDP growth, and I think as it exits the program, it now will be, after Ireland, the big poster boy for uh, economic turnaround in Europe.
1: Uh, Let me... um Go to the intersection of of politics and money here. We were talking earlier about the exit polls uh, in Michigan and Mississippi showing enormous numbers of uh, people who uh, voted in the Republican primary suggesting they think the economy is in terrible shape and they're very worried about it. From where you sit, how is the economy?
5: Well, I think the people who were worried about it have a right to be worried because the economy has not been very evenly distributed. And the people left behind have been really more or less the middle class and lower middle class people. And if you look at the Trump phenomenon and you look at the Sanders phenomenon, that's a lot of where they're drawing their support from. That segment of the economy really has not recovered. If anything, it's lost some ground, and they're angry
1: about it. What about uh In the segment of the economy you occupy, and I don't just mean you personally, obviously, your businesses do well, but the people you talk to, the businesses you deal with, are they investing? Are they seeing profits? Are they optimistic about the future?
5: Well, I think everybody is concerned about geopolitics, not just in the U.S. I can't remember a time where there's been more extremism, more polarization In just about every big country, every big democratic society around the world, you look at Germany, you look at Spain having trouble forming a government, you look at Italy, you look, you look, you look, you look at the U.S. with these phenomena we have in the primaries. It's a very strange time uh, globally.
4: How does your Republican Party establishment regroup and move forward? Is this a one-off Or is this a new calculus for Lincoln's party? Well, I think the establishment is
5: a self-appointed designation. And I don't know there's any officialdom that says this is the establishment, this is not. Um, And I do think, as I said earlier, that it was very unfortunate that Mitt Romney went so far as to say he would not vote for Trump if Trump were the nominee. I think if you believe in the two-party system, as I do, the leadership of the party who's elected, the guy who gets to be the nominee, should expect that the party will coalesce around him. And it shouldn't be, well, we'll only coalesce if it's somebody we'd like anyway. That's not a party. That, that's individuality.
1: But uh, what was wrong with Romney's analysis of Trump? Was there anything in there that was inaccurate? Oh, uh, he's
5: entitled to his views, and I think for him to say he would personally prefer another candidate, fine. Everybody should be able to do that. I think where he went too far was saying who would not vote for the party's nominee. I don't see how you can be a party loyalist, especially a party establishment figure, and say, but I will go against the
1: will of the party. But you, you see uh, Donald Trump running a campaign based on racism, based on appealing to the worst uh, in society, uh, with an economic plan that n- no economist thinks makes any sense to the extent he even has a plan. Uh, why would you vote for him? Is there, is there nothing that could be t- beyond the pale in a candidate?
5: No, it isn't, it isn't a question beyond the pale. I think if you wish to be the leader of a party, party loyalty has to factor into it. Parties are not meant to be a thing that comes and goes. I haven't liked all of the nominees that the Republican Party has put forward in in my senatorial races, in congressional races, even in presidential. But I think either you believe in a two-party system or you uh-huh. don't. And if you believe in... If you don't believe in a two-party system, that's fine. Then you ought to be for fragmentation, not say, I'm a leader of a party, but I'm only going to be a leader if everybody else agrees with me. Then
4: The numbers I saw yesterday, 42% independent, 24% nationally listed as Republicans. We've become independent America. How do the parties attract and retain those voters? Well, I think it is fact-
5: That most people who now call themselves independents used to call themselves Republicans and got fed up with the goings-on in the party. So I think to some degree what's happening now is some of those people are climbing back. I think a lot of the Tea Party people came out of the Republican Party mainstream. So I think you have now the issue... Does the Republican Party well, need a redefinition?
4: This is a critical distinction. The Tea Party crew, maybe they uh, are comfortable with Senator Cruz as a general statement. Can they maybe can they move over and can those conservatives be comfortable with Mr. Trump, who's got some very different policies? Well, that's, that's
5: obviously a big, very big question, um, and it'll be answered pretty soon. Um, I think it was very interesting to see the variety of jurisdictions in which Trump has won. Uh, The evangelicals in South Carolina going all the way to auto workers in Michigan, that covers a pretty wide range of American
1: population. Other than the fact that he says he's a Republican now, why would you vote for Donald Trump? What is it that he could do for America?
5: Well, I think he is a leader, um, and I think he's had very good people hired in the past. People forget that when his casinos went through the bankruptcies, who was his chief financial officer? Steve Ballenbach. What did Steve go on to do? Become CEO of Hilton Hotels, did a very good job with it, and sold it for a great, huge fortune. So he's had a history of having good people. And to me, any kind of leadership is a function of having good people in support of the number one person. But my my point is not so much to endorse Trump as to say either you have parties that are coherent and stay together. If the mass of the party nominates a candidate, they should stick with it.
4: Wilbur Ross, thank you so much. W.L. Ross and Company with uh, comments on his Republican Party. Mr. Ross, a uh, significant so- supporter of Governor Romney, uh, last time around. Futures up 10. Dow futures up 82. Uh, Brent crude $40, uh, $40.28 a barrel up 63 cents.
1: Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and news head, uh, national headlines. Mike.
6: Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump says there is a need for the party to unite around him. Trump maintains, though, it would be premature to start toning down his aggressive campaign style, especially in the face of what he calls vicious attacks from his rivals. Trump won contests in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Ted Cruz won Idaho's primary yesterday. Bernie Sanders secured a narrow upset in Michigan's primary. However, Hillary Clinton took Mississippi and now has more than half of the delegates needed to secure the Democratic presidential nomination. The two will meet for a debate again tonight. French unions have slowed rail traffic around the country with strikes. It is in protest of proposals by President Francois Hollande's government. That essentially would end the nation's 35-hour work week. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom?
4: Uh, Michael, thank you so much. Michael McKee, Tom Keen on economics, finance, investment, on international relations. This is Bloomberg Surveillance.
1: Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch, committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon, named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by the banker. That's the power of Global Connections, Bank of America, NAFDIC.
3: Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash.
7: And I'm Karen Moscow. Futures are higher this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill.
2: Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures are maintaining their gain since the last time we spoke. Dow futures currently higher by 87 points. SB futures gain 10 and NASDAQ futures rise by 23. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.88%. In Europe, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain are higher by at least 1%. And global bond yields and crude futures are also trading higher this morning. On the U.S. economic front at 10 o'clock, wholesale inventories. And at 10.30, energy inventories. After the last night, Bill Ackman raised the possibility Valley may sell its Bausch and Loam steak. And Chipotle closed a Massachusetts restaurant after workers became sick. In other news, Rail CSX sees macroeconomic challenges persisting through 2016. Finally, some of your Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. Ross Stores cut to neutral at Goldman Sachs. FireEye raised to overweight over at Piper. BHP Bilton cut to hold at Jefferies. Yelp and Groupon cut the sell over at UBS. And finally, CBS raised to outperform over at Wells Fargo. Live from the First Breaking News Desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen?
7: Thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K-Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh,
4: thanks so much. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Have you considered all of your investment alternatives? Non-traditional asset classes and strategies may help you achieve your goals. Find out more at Invesco.com Com/alternatives. Too short a time this morning with John at Writing of RDQ Economics to go back X number of years. John, to your great phrase, "Where's the putting green?"
8: Well. Just for those who aren't aren't, um, amongst – Tom is referring back to 2004 piece when (laughs) the Federal Reserve was raising rates at a quarter point of meeting, and we argued that they they were not getting close to uh, the the green. They were just starting off on the path of monetary neutrality. Look, We've had one move, and now we seem stalled by the Fed, and, and by all logic that the Fed's laid down in data dependency, they should be raising interest rates next week. But it would be such a shock to the markets. It's not in this Fed's DNA, I think, to do that. So um, we know the putting greens out there, but the Fed has <laughs> still uh, just uh, got out of the clubhouse and has uh, hit the ball <laughs> once, maybe on the. Um, My,
4: I got to give that new headline to John's next essay. Are we on the golf course? <laughs>
1: <You know. laughs> this is, well, I mean, what have we gone from punch bowl to putting green to, yeah. to, to golf course here? Um, you just don't want to be out of bounds. Uh, the economy is at least matching what the Fed said it would do uh, this year. Um, but the Fed is not matching what it said it would do this year in terms of uh, of interest rates. Uh, we've talked a lot about the markets and the economy, uh, the markets and the Fed not being on the same page and having to come together. What about the Fed and its own forecast?
8: Well, that, that's the real challenge uh, next week. Look, any one move doesn't matter, but the Fed has laid out a path of raising rates about a quarter point per quarter uh, for at least the next two years, and then a little bit more after that. Uh, and we have to ask. Has the Fed laid out a new rationale for running monetary policy other than looking at the labor market and looking at the inflation numbers? And you say labor market numbers, 4.9% unemployment. We've averaged 223,000 jobs per month over the last three months on inflation. Core inflation is now 1.7%. It's not at the 1.3% level it was back in December. So the Fed, unless they roll out a new rationale, if they don't move next week, they should. On their own logic, but it seems very unlikely. They can't change that outlook too much, except there's if you look at the speeches by Stan Fisher, probably they'll lower the neutral rate of interest, the rest of the neutral rate of interest, nudge it down maybe a quarter point, maybe take one move out of that. But a radical move would require a radical new form of policy, something of the kind, I, I don't believe the argument, but the only person who's really laying out that case right now is Lyle Brainerd, which is saying we can't have this great divergence between U.S. monetary policy and the ECB and the Bank of Japan. Now, I disagree with that for you because I don't think we're a small, open economy. We're a large, still relatively closed economy, and the U.S. should set monetary policy based on U.S. needs. But there's no one else really out there... Uh, in the Fed who's laying out a a different way of looking at monetary policy. So I can't see how they change the dots too much.
1: Well, uh, when do you think they act and uh, how uh, are they going to be at the end of the year forced to act more quickly? Uh, They could
8: do. Um, If they don't move uh, next week, I, I think it's June. The problem with June is what happens on June 23rd. We have, a vote, uh, uh, we have the Brexit vote. So you have another potential global thing for the Fed to worry about. Um, the markets are saying one move a year. The Fed saying one move per quarter. Um, that is a, a, a huge divergence. And I really hope that those of you who are at the press conference next week ask, press the Fed on that divergence. Because it's not trivial.
4: I want to talk to you about productivity. We spoke with Dominic Constam. He was at Cambridge, as you were at Sydney, Sussex. He was at St. John's. And he's adamant that this time is different. It's not a 1990s dearth of productivity before the technological progress of the Internet. There's something different now. Are, are, Are you concerned about low productivity? And should it amend or adjust what Chair Yellen does?
8: I'm very concerned about low productivity. We're running the lowest productivity growth over the last five years that we've done since 1980, and that was in the depths of a a really deep recession. Um, And without productivity gains, the wage increases that people uh, at the Fed and elsewhere in, in government want to see and workers want to see can only come at the expense of profits, which would undermine the expansion, or at the expense of higher inflation. There's no free lunch. You can't have higher wages and maintain profit margins and keep low inflation and have this low productivity growth. And for so long, people people talk about the economy and slow growth and think it's a demand problem. We really have a supply-side problem, and we don't understand it, but as Stan Fisher said, it doesn't look like its measurement.
4: You've got to come back. We need a longer time with you at some point here. John writing for far too short a time uh, today with RD2, RDQ uh, Economics. Just fantastic. Uh, we're going to look at politics next. I believe there was a horse race yesterday. This is Bloomberg surveillance.
1: Coming up, the with all due respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit Land Rover, tristate.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover Above and Beyond. Good morning, it is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keane, Economic Indicators, brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. No major numbers out today. We do get wholesale inventories at 10 a.m. this morning, Tom, Uh, often a reflection of what's going on
4: in trade. May I state... We had a huge response from our Wilbur Ross interview. Huge response to his comments that Republicans have to get behind Mr. Trump. Huge response.
1: Well, according to um, the surveys, uh, the latest ABC Washington Post survey, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, um, pro and con, but get, a huge response. Well, get to that in a minute. But I wanted to just uh, go from the economy numbers here into the economy's impact on the political process, Megan Murphy from Bloomberg News, the Bloomberg Washington bureau chief, joining us now. Um, Megan, I'm looking at Gary Langer's exit poll numbers for ABC, and Gary, of course, produces the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index. Four in ten, um, uh, six in ten, rather, um, voters in the Republican primary in Michigan say they are worried about the direction of the economy, eight in ten in Mississippi. And yet you talk to people on Wall Street and uh, things aren't that bad. There seems to be quite a disconnect between people on Wall Street and people in what uh, many on Wall Street would call the flyover.
9: Yeah, and I think that explains so much of what we've been seeing so far this election cycle. This disconnect is real. We've done many stories showing how actually the underlying fundamentals, whether you look at wages, whether you look at productivity, whether you look at labor force participation, where actually things seem to be you know, getting better. But yet that is not reflected in this huge, angry swing we see, this anti-establishment swing we see, and even the number of people in those same exit polls who identified Donald Trump as the man they... Think would do the best job of shepherding the economy. He won by a big margin on that score in Mississippi and a big margin on that score in Michigan.
1: Does this su- suggest an, uh, another interesting stat out uh, from uh, NBC this morning? Um, Trump has won every state with unemployment over 5%. That uh, people are uh, are willing to overlook everything else because it's the economy, stupid.
9: I think it's the economy, too, and I think you also see that on the flip side of the Democratic race. You know, one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders was able to pull off that stunning upset in Michigan last night was that he really doubled down on some of his key themes on trade, some of his key themes on income inequality. Mm -hmm. People think that Hillary made a mistake when she sort of tagged him with that he hadn't supported the auto bailout, which is sort of partially not true. And, again, the economics were on full display of how that remains the animating theme. Of this
4: election. Senator Cruz to the rescue. Give us an update on Senator Cruz's relationship with other Republican establishment leaders. As an amateur, I'm suggesting it's fractious. If you're the pro, are they even on speaking terms?
9: Look, we've done extensive looks this week and talked to a bunch of people to see if we can see any movement by some of his Senate colleagues to get behind him, to coalesce behind him. And you'd be hard. And it's pretty much crickets in the room right now. This is kind of their worst scenario. If there's anyone the establishment sort of fears or is more concerned about than Donald Trump, it's actually Ted Cruz. His, views, his views are very out of the mainstream. His positions are very hard right. And fundamentally for a Republican establishment, they do not believe he can win against Hillary. Clinton. They believe his positions are simply too out of step with what is a rapidly changing demographic.
1: Well, American voters as of the last couple of days, don't believe that Trump can win either. The latest ABC Washington poll just out uh, within the last hour shows that uh, right now Hillary Clinton leads Donald Trump uh, by a 50 to 41 percent vote preference among registered voters, 54 to 36 among everyone. But uh, while that's just a snapshot in time, what I found very interesting is you look at uh, Republicans who say they don't want Donald Trump. If he is the nominee, only 53 percent of them say they would be like Wilbur Ross and vote for the Republican because he's the Republican. It is, to get back to what Tom said at the beginning, going to be very hard for Trump to even attract the Republican Party, let alone uh, independents and, and Democrats.
9: I think this number is one that we're going to have to watch closely to see if it changes because what we haven't yet see play out is the realization among a huge part of the Republican Party, the sort of majority of the Republican Party, that Donald Trump can and is the nominee. And I think once that sort of, I do call it sort of the five stages of grief as some people have described it, I do think there's many senior figures in the party who will look at this race and look at this contest and say, look, if we don't get behind him, we risk a true civil war in the party, a fraction of the party like we have haven't seen are we really are we really willing to risk the senate risk the house risk some of our governorships in 2018 when a lot of those states come up risk redistricting i do think over the next several days we're going to see some establishment figures i thought what wilbur ross said was tremendously interesting say wait a second are we potentially doing more harm than good by continuing this never trump stop trump you, you listen to our
4: interview with wilbur ross
9: well, I was on sort of at the same time, so I was listening to it in one ear. But I think, you know, look, this is the thing. The party risks, you know, uh, the party risks a fundamental split. And whether the senior financiers, I hear it a lot from people who have put a lot of money into this election, saying yeah. we don't want to cut off our nose to spite our face.
4: it's yeah, an interesting angle. What, what is your number one study item as you move to Florida next Tuesday? What's the thing you want to know about
9: well, the number one thing we're watching is I want to see on the, what I'm most interested in is the early voting now and how much we've seen, mm-hmm. how much of those votes have gone to Rubio, how many some of those votes will have gone to Jeb Bush, frankly. Um, but if this, you know, Rubio will come under tremendous pressure, even in the coming days, even before Florida, to sort of think about his position in the race. He is going if Ted Cruz wants to sort of have the strategy of, of making sure Rubio exits, Donald Trump's probably going to okay. win Florida.
4: Yeah. Megan, well, we've got to leave it there. Megan, thank you so much. No doubt we will speak to you before next t- Tuesday. Megan Murphy, uh, Bureau Chief for the District of Columbia Office of Bloomberg Futures. Up nine.
1: Time now to check in with Michael Barr for the latest news headlines, Michael.
6: Mike, Tom, thank you. There are new questions being raised about the Iran nuclear agreement today. After Iran's news agency says to Ron fired two ballistic missiles. Written in Hebrew on the missiles is the phrase, Israel must be wiped out. The show of force comes as Vice President Joe Biden visits Israel. I want to reiterate, which I know people still doubt here.
3: If, in fact, they break the deal,
6: we will act. Biden spoke in Jerusalem alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who opposed the Iran nuclear deal. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are debating tonight for the eighth time in Florida. Last night, Sanders scored an upset win in Michigan's Democratic presidential primary. However, Clinton won the primary in Mississippi and is more than halfway to hitting the number needed to win the party's nomination. For the Republicans, Donald Trump won contests in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Ted Cruz won the primary in Idaho. A public Viewing begins today for Nancy Reagan at the Reagan Presidential Library. Her body will lie in repose for two days. The former First Lady died Sunday. Global news 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom.
1: Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here is John Stashower.
0: Thanks, Mike. It was five years ago. Carmelo Anthony got traded by Denver to the Knicks. Since then, a lot more losing than winning. He was back in Denver last night, still hasn't won in any of his returns there. Nuggets with an easy 110-94 win. Melo had 30 in the loss. In Toronto, the Nets had a 16-point halftime lead. The Raptors came back and prevailed 104-99. Rangers and Islanders both won. Rangers stayed three points ahead. They were up 3 nothing. 0 held on to win 4-2 at Buffalo. The Isles got power play goals from John Tavares and Anders Lee. Lee in the third period to snap a tie. They top Pittsburgh 2-1. Another local team headed to the NCAA tournament. The Knights of Fairleigh Dickinson winning at Wagner in the Northeast Final 87-79. Their fifth NCAA's first since 2005. Jets are losing top rusher Chris Ivory cashing in on his 1,000-yard season. Expected to sign today with Jacksonville. Free agency begins with the Jets unsure if they'll be able to keep quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick. Giants are keeping top pass rusher Jason Pierre-Paul for one more year. JPP made it back from that fireworks incident where he lost a Finger. Word today, Giants have a deal with free agent quarterback to Norris Jenkins, who is with the Rams. Spring training, Matt Harvey on the mound. First time since the World Series. Three innings, one run. CC Sabathia, two hitless innings in his first appearance since leaving the Yankees for alcohol rehab. Bloomberg NBC Sports Update.
1: I'm John Stancho. John, thank you very much. Well, we are... Setting up after yesterday's uh, disappointments in the markets, we're sort of setting up for a better day today, and maybe it has to do with the fact that oil prices are higher this morning. Uh, Brent up by 1.6%, West Texas by 1.4%, yeah. Brent back over $40. That has uh, S&P futures up by eight points right now, four-tenths. Dow futures up 71. Yeah, and a
4: five five basis tenths. point swing day-to-day on 10-year yield. Yeah, uh,
1: place. You know, uh, Francine Lacroix was very interested in the Sun report that the Queen is backing Brexit, uh, no response from her honor. But uh, the FTSE is up 39, call it 40 points, seven-tenths and the pound. Is, uh, well, it's come down a little bit. It's about break even right now, 1.4201. So uh, we'll see whether Her Majesty uh, indeed favors separation from Europe. Something will follow here on Bloomberg Surveillance.
4: Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by CIT from transportation to healthcare to manufacturing. CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small middle market businesses. CIT.com.
7: And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Eisner Amper. When entrepreneurs face challenges like choosing a business structure or access to capital, they call the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amper. Connect with them at EisnerAmper.com slash tech. Valiant Pharmaceuticals International will add three new board members, including a representative from one of the drug maker's biggest investors, and expand the panel to 14 directors from 12. BMW reporting a 5.2% gain in profit last year on higher vehicle deliveries as the world's World's largest maker of luxury cars pushes to stay ahead of Mercedes Benz. U.S. stock index futures higher. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. SP e mini futures up 8 points. Dow e mini futures up 69. And Nasdaq e mini futures up 16. DAX in Germany is up 1.2%. Ten year Treasury down 1432 seconds. The yield 1.87%. NYMEX crude oil up 1.4% or 51 cents to 37.01 a barrel. COMEX gold down 7 tenths percent or 8 dollars Fifty cents to twelve fifty-four fifty an ounce. The euro, a dollar The yen, one twelve point eight zero. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike.
4: Karen, uh, thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. It is eight forty-eight on Wall Street.
3: The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists.
10: I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For all the recent chatter, Donald Trump's unlikely to run as a third-party candidate, even if he's denied the Republican nomination. The reason's simple. He can't afford it. According to Trump's personal financial disclosure form, he had about $300 million in cash and marketable securities. That's a lot of money, yet not enough to run a major presidential campaign, which now clocks in at around $1 billion. And to be competitive in the general, he would have to spend something close to that amount, because once it's down to two or three candidates, the media is going to make sure the other folks get as much airtime as he does. Nor can he do without little things like campaign staff and a get-out-the-vote operation. He could maybe mortgage some of his interests, borrowing a billion dollars to fund a campaign, but this seems unlikely. For one thing, by the most generous non-Trump estimates of his net worth, that would mean mortgaging about a quarter of his assets for a near certain loss. Even if he was mad enough to try, are bankers insane enough to help him? As known expert Donald Trump once noted, these lenders aren't babies. These are total killers. They're not nice, sweet little people that you'd think. One suspects they might, in the end, be the ones who kill any hope of a third-party campaign. I'm Megan McArdle. For more of you, please go to BloombergView.com or view Go on the Bloomberg Terminal.
3: This has been Bloomberg View.
4: And Bloomberg View commentary can be heard hourly weekdays. On Bloomberg Radio, Mike Brexit, Draghi, Draghi Brexit.
1: Well, for a lot of people who are not uh, as concerned with politics as they are with uh, the financial markets, tomorrow is the big day. The big day. Mario Draghi and his colleagues at the European Central Bank get together and decide what they are going to do. Lena Komaleva is chief economist at G Plus Economics, and she joins us now with her forecast. Lena, the most interesting note to me this morning was somebody – writing that they had noted how many people were thinking that Mario Draghi would have a very hard time living up to the market's expectations for what he can do tomorrow. What do you think he will do and is it going to be enough?
11: Hi, Mike. Tom, it's great to be with you. I think, um, yes, it is true that it it is a a uphill struggle, I think, at this point for any central banker out there to face up to a fairly agnostic and increasingly sceptical market with respect to the power of central banks to deflate the global economy. Um, But specifically to your question for tomorrow, there are three choices, really more QE, more negative interest rates, or what I call helicopter money, which is basically reviving the old Veltro, very long-term operations, merging them with the Teltros, the targeted long-term operations, and ultimately coming up with the, what I call the Ultros, which is the targeted long-, very long-term, um, operations. In other words, creating something very close to helicopter money without trying to have yeah. the apple cart in terms of political attitudes.
4: Thank you. You lost me with the alphabet soup. Define helicopter <laughs> money. Help me with the Sikorsky approach. What does helicopter money actually mean?
11: Well, helicopter money is basically the equivalent of QE, but without central banks actually having to burden themselves with the hard choices of deciding what assets or how much assets to buy. In other words, just distributing, creating money to, to be distributed in the private sector. Um, and as we know, the ECB has been running against some, some critical technical constraints, in particular the fact that... Um, they're lifting so much inventory out of the market in terms of government bonds that they are creating some supply bottlenecks because uh, austerity in the eurozone means the governments are not printing. Oh, sorry, they're not, <laughs> they're, not lend- they're not borrowing as much money from the markets. They're not printing as many securities, <laughs> another form of money. So, in other words, um, if uh, that Mario Draghi is now facing the constraints of how much bonds and how quickly he can buy these bonds and can get them off banks' balance sheets and replace them with cash, which then and hopefully finds its way into the real economy. Well, another way to go about that is to actually subsidize banks that are just taking cash in order to, to create credit. I think, Tom, if I may just take a step back from this, I think what we have to remember here, while there's just this enormous discussion about what the ECB might announce tomorrow, the art of central banking um, is about convincing the private sector that whatever it announces, it will lift inflation expectations, it will reflate the real economy by creating the risk incentives for lenders to generate credit. And so it is very much about convincing the markets that whatever mm. it comes, it will be enough, as opposed to the technicalities of what comes.
1: Well, that's the question I was posing at the beginning. Is he going to be able to convince the markets? Because so far, um, inflation expectations aren't rising. The economy is muddling along. It hasn't collapsed, but that's hardly the benchmark people are looking for.
11: Absolutely, Mike. I mean, the trouble with the ECB is that they've had this very unfavorable optics of an expanding balance sheet, yet a strengthening euro and uh, a falling inflation expectation since the start of the year. I think there are two forces that are really bigger than the ECB in play here. First, central banks are no longer in charge of market conditions. It is, as you and Tom have often said in your program, it is capital flows that are driving um, uh, capital uh, allocation by investors, which are driven by credit quality concerns as opposed to the fundamental policy liquidity and rate differentials um, as the key market drive in the markets this year. And so the result is that neither bank stocks nor general stock market volatilities, no exchange rates in this case the euro, so the three core transmission channels for central banks' um, record low interest rates and quantitative easing have conformed to what to be expected that it will happen since the launch of QE. And and the other big issue here, is that, you know, if we look at what the ECB or the Fed for that matter are facing in the next week, when you look at the market conditions from a thousand feet up in the air, it is the, the oversupply of liquidity as opposed to fundamental shifts in the real economic prospects that are increasingly behind financial valuations. And this, in some cases, particularly in the case of government bonds, is leading to significant temporary pricing imbalances, both to the upside and to the downside for yields. So in other words, Too much liquidity in the market, crowded in by negative rates, by emerging market corporate default fears, by volatile stocks, by negative market correlations, all of that creates this market illiquidity and dislocation. And this, in turn, creates this new types of behavioral and liquidity risks in periods of market stress, which diminishes investor confidence in the strength of central banks to actually dictate the very financial conditions that determine their transmission mechanism into the real economy.
4: When I look, Lena, at what to listen for tomorrow at 8.30, what will be the tone that you'll want to see? Is it deflation, disinflation talk? Does he dare even mention Brexit? I mean, I can't fathom that. As Carney skirted around it earlier this week. What will you listen for?
11: Well, I'm hoping that we will hear a central banker that faces up to the challenges of today, and that is that the eurozone economy is... In the heart of a, of, of, of global turbulence of, you know, geoeconomic and political and, you know, geofinancial forces that are a danger to, um, Eurozone inflation stability, but also very much a danger to, uh, Eurozone growth and, and, and financial stability going forward. And so I think that Mario Draghi does have to convince the markets that he has the power to deliver whatever he takes. Uh, which is really what the market started to question since the political position to more QE uh, back in December. The ECB has gone some way to rectify that, of course, through the announcement of extension of QE uh, in January. But it's clear it hasn't been enough. So what will it be enough and um, how confident really – I think the key thing, Tom, is whether Draghi says that he's confident that the ECB will reach its inflation target over the medium term uh, and what that medium term actually means.
4: Lena Komaleva, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. As we go nice briefing as we go to Mr. Draghi tomorrow. Um, also, Mr. Draghi Tomorrow folks, this is a place to be. Mike McKee and I have the advantage of our European economics and government team, particularly the economic folks led by Marty Schenker. And uh it, it's real simple. The headlines start coming out and they have value, particularly that Michael McKee can interpret them you far better and more rapidly than I can. What will you look for, Mike?
1: Well, the first thing, at 745, we'll have uh, the details of the announcement on interest rates, and we'll look to the deposit rate and see if they cut that further into negative territory. Somebody suggested yesterday they could even go to zero or negative on the refi rate, the main benchmark rate. That would be interesting. Uh, And then we'll go from there, uh, 830. Mario Draghi, and whether or not he goes into more negative rates, whether he does more QE or, as Lena says, figures out a way to do helicopter money.
4: Yeah, I, I, it, it's not, is, is any of this in the textbooks? I really don't think so. It's in the, text, it's in the theory part,
1: in the chapter on theories that are unproven.
4: I like that. Um, I didn't you know. re- I missed that chapter. Yeah. Um, we'll see. will <clears throat> marry a Draghi uh, tomorrow with our coverage worldwide. And we will dip into that conference as we are wont to do. We will give you the actual color of it as the, uh, Mr. Draghi speaks. Uh, green on the screen. Futures up seven. The 10-year yield moves a good five basis points. 1.88%.
11: This is Bloomberg Surveillance.